You mentioned Josh Hawley, who's taken on this cause. He's writing a whole book about masculinity. He goes on basically saying that all these things happening to men in our society, like all these negative trends, are because of the left. And I'm like, that's bullshit. In my generation, I didn't feel like I was taught to really take personal responsibility as much. I think that there was a lot of like placing blame and pointing your fingers at yeah, things that I go wrong that. for you. And yeah. I think it is really resonating with young boys. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. On today's show, what did and did not make into the final version of the Democrats' landmark spending bill, a debate over the promise and peril of masculinity, and our most revealing moments from CPAC. But let's start with some breaking news last night. The FBI raided Donald Trump's Florida residence, Mar-a-Lago, reportedly in connection with the former president allegedly taking documents from the White House and storing them there instead. Ricky, what did you think when you saw this news? Um, I think this obviously means that a lot of the speculation from the January 6th commission and investigations into Trump are clearly being escalated to an unprecedented level, a historic level. Um, but I think it's really important right now to like make it abundantly clear that we don't know what the origin of this is. There's been investigations into like Trump family business, into the documents that you mentioned. I think it's probably the latter seems more likely, but um, it's been interesting to see conservative media react to it. This is also about respect. You have a former president of the United States. He's due respect. He has a slew of attorneys that can negotiate the release of documents that are needed. You don't have to go into his home with crowbars and go into his safe. Well, Ricky, when I think of Fox News, I definitely think of respect for former presidents like Barack Obama, George W. Bush, and Bill Clinton. But that aside, the I, I agree with you. We just don't know enough right now. What we do know as of this morning's taping is that uh, sources are telling reporters that this was related to an ongoing struggle to get documents from Donald Trump. There had been negotiations between Donald Trump's lawyers and the Justice Department to hand over certain documents. Uh, this was a federal warrant. And a couple of things that are notable about this warrant. Number one is that Trump is in possession of this warrant, so he could mm -hmm. release this warrant, and actually, which would provide us a lot more information about what it was they were looking for and what probable cause they showed a judge. Second yeah. is that these federal warrants are pretty stringent. So you have to show that you have pretty good evidence that what you're looking for is where it is and that they're related to a crime. Mm -hmm. And so there are a couple different scenarios. I was trying to play out like what's going on here. Like scenario one is that this is just related to the documents and it's not even that there's anything in particular in these documents that they're concerned about, but just that they're classified. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say this is probably an unlikely outcome just because I think that Merrick Garland who's been fairly careful in the public square so far, uh, and an, an FBI director who was appointed by Trump and Christopher Wray, it seems to me this would be a, a pretty aggressive action if that's all it was. So mm -hmm. to me, I think there might be more going on here. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously waters could be vindicated in the end and this could be a politicization of the justice system but i think that the more likely thing is that there's probably something that we don't know and that might be why trump in his statement that he released did not explain why this happened and right. just complained that they went into his safe but i think you know we we should continue to watch the story obviously um but not take any strong stances like waters has at this yeah. point in time for sure yeah and i'll just say like for our listeners like here are a couple of other options 
Uh, number two is that they just went to get the documents back, but they don't intend to charge Trump. They could just be like saying, look, we want these documents. There's something in it that we're concerned about. Uh, third is that there's something in the documents that pertains to some kind of misconduct by Trump outside of the documents. So he's mm -hmm. using the documents to leverage, you know, in some either some relations with foreign governments for financing reasons or blackmail, et cetera, or uh, that there's something in the documents that are not very flattering to him and that he would want to either destroy them or prevent those from getting into the public record. It is puzzling that if that were the scenario that he didn't just destroy these documents like if he's holding on to yeah. them for this song like like is he like a hoarder like i'm wondering like why hold on to this kind of stuff at all why hold on to it but mm -hmm. why if it is something damaging to you why not just like shred these documents yeah you know? i mean that would seem logical i think that probably flies in the face of that theory then right and i think that the final thing here could be it's just more than documents like yeah. what's being reported isn't actually true but that this was a raid where they were looking for something beyond the classified information uh could be a, like and then and that could go in wildly different directions so like it could be a quote-unquote fishing expedition and that would i think really i think stoke some fires on the right or it could be fairly targeted and laid out in this warrant or mm -hmm. in the warrant it says hey we're looking for classified documents but we're also looking for financial documents related to this 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 and this all of that being said uh there is precedence here for this kind of stuff so samuel berger who is the national security advisor to uh, president clinton pled guilty in 2015 to a misdemeanor charge for removing classified material from a government archive in 2007, Donald Kaiser, who is an Asia expert at the State Department, confessed to keeping more than 3,000 sensitive documents in his house, in his basement. And so this is the kind of stuff that has happened before. People have been held accountable to this before. There is a law on the books that does involve prison time for this. It also, interestingly, and Mark Elias, the, the lawyer for the Democratic Party, pointed this out, is that this statute also bars anybody who's convicted under it from holding office again, which seems relevant given who we are, who we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. Well, Ricky, the annual Conservative Political Action Conference, CPAC, took place in Dallas this weekend, bringing together some of those prominent figures in the conservative movement, including the bell of the ball, former President Donald Trump. Uh, and what we want to do here is just pick notable moments from mm -hmm. CPAC, given that this was a gathering of some of the most prominent senators, leaders, media figures on the right. By the way, have you ever been to CPAC before? No, uh, this isn't really my crowd, exactly. I, I feel like we let a pitch go by. We should have sent somebody to this. Like mix some of the notable substantive things that happened at CPAC with some of the, the you know more theatrical things that mm -hmm. happened. And I wanna start with a speech by not an American head of state, but actually the Hungarian head of state, Viktor Orban. Let's listen to a little bit of what he had to say. If traditional families are gone, there is nothing that can save the West from going under. To sum up, the mother is a woman, the father is a man, and leave our kids alone. Full stop, end of discussion. We decided, we decided we don't need more genders, we need more rangers. <laughs> Less drag queens and more Chuck Norris. It's an interesting opener. Yeah. Um, it's a bold choice. I've I've heard a lot of people make the analogy that in the same way that the left kind of um, looks to Nordic countries as their ideal of like the the model for them, the right is looking to Hungary, which to me I don't love as a libertarian. It's definitely a more right authoritarian state. And while I can agree with some issues, I tend not to sympathize with Orban's um, 
mechanisms for just kind of being a strong fist, like social um, activist, essentially, as a prime minister. But um, it's interesting that he's been pretty widely embraced. Tucker Carlson went out to Hungary at one point and did like a long form interview with him. Not that I don't think you should talk to someone and, and listen to them and hear what they have to say, but it seemed like, like a pretty big endorsement from him. So I don't love the optics on this one personally. Yeah, I... To me, it's very startling, and I think my initial reaction was to laugh at it, but then when you dig into the details, there's a, this is actually a really substantive connection between people like Orban and um, figures on the right in America. And mm-hmm. I, I first thought, well, okay, you were talking about the Nordic countries. Obviously, it's very different. Those are democracies, and, and what's been widely established is that Orban has been taking Hungary over an authoritarian path, as you alluded to. But I think I was like, all right, what if Hugo Chavez, now deceased, I spoke at Netroots. Maybe that's the example. But then I was like, well, Netroots isn't to, to the left what CPAC is to the right. Like in this one gathering, you have Trump, Hannity, Jim Jordan, Ted Cruz, Abbott, even rising stars like Flores, you know, Reagan going all the way back to the early days of CPAC made like a seminal mm-hmm. speech there. Netroots isn't even treated like that on the left at all. So like there mm-hmm. actually isn't a precedence here. And there's also not a precedence for foreign leaders coming and engaging in American politics in this way. It happens every now and then. Netanyahu Mm -hmm. did it, and a lot of people got pissed about it. And, you know, Ann Applebaum, who I really respected, kind of summed it up here. And she said, CPAC admires Orban because, number one, he bent the rules. He changed his constitution, altering voting laws in order to remain in power indefinitely. Two, he destroyed the independent media. Nothing remains but a few websites. Three, he doesn't keep his homophobia, his anti-Semitism, or his racism a secret. And four, he moves, walks, and talks like a Ruritarian dictator from a movie. Uh, and you know he was famous Orban for coining the term illiberal democracy and mm-hmm. leaning into that term. Uh, and he most recently said um, in this speech, he said, "We cannot fight successfully by liberal means because our opponents use liberal institutions, concepts, and language to disguise their Marxist and hegemonic plans." This disturbs me that the, a huge segment of American political life is embracing this ideology. Yeah, I think um, I, I very much agree that there's frequent um, kind of outgrowths of the same ideology in American politics on the right. But I also think it's important to say that I know libertarians who've spoken at CPAC and who don't share his beliefs. And it doesn't mean that just because he was there, everyone that's there or speaks there is tainted by association. But it is a certainly to me a clear condemnation of the organizers that this is who they choose as as their front and center guy. This question of where do you spend your time and how much of your time and political capital do you spend celebrating certain causes? There were banners that said, we are domestic terrorists. Uh, Obviously, a lot of the candidates have certain views about January 6th and about the election, and that seemed to be a dominant theme. This speculation about the future of McCarthy, what happened Mm -hmm. there? Um, So here we have Matt Gates. If anyone posits to be the leader of our party and our movement, they cannot stand for the swamp and the establishment and the bureaucratic permanent state. They have to stand with us in exposing these issues. And if Kevin McCarthy will not allow us to be able to find out these answers, he should not be the leader of the Republican conference. What do you guys think about that? Do we, do we want Jim Jordan? This is an interesting political moment because in 2018, McCarthy beat Jordan by an enormous margin, but the spectrum of what being a conservative and a member of the GOP right now means has shifted considerably. And so now there's a lot of pressure, but it's interesting because the internal 
dialogue between Jordan and McCarthy. Um, Jordan has supported McCarthy and has not revoked that since. Mm-hmm. And um, and McCarthy has also brought him in as an advisor. But I think you know it's it's a it's an interesting moment. But it's also coming from Gates, who has um, su- like suggested Trump for that role as well right. too. So I because anybody could be the speaker of the yeah, house. Yeah, I'm not sure that that's really uh, formidable. There are growing ranks here for. Uh, Jordan over McCarthy. You've got, um, you know, the aforementioned Marjorie Taylor Greene, Boebert, uh, and as I've said, like there's a growing ranks of people within. I don't know what we want to call this caucus of the U.S. House, but they're going to cause problems yeah. for McCarthy because they can stymie his leadership not with a majority, but just enough so that Republicans don't have a majority for that vote, and they could demand whatever leader that they want. Now, Jordan would be an interesting pick because. He was one of the biggest proponents of the big lie. He was uh, present in key meetings about the sort of fake electors plot. Uh, and obviously he has a lot of personal baggage with you know his time as a wrestling coach in Ohio and allegations of, of what he either was part of or covered up there or looked the other way as it related to sexual abuse of boys. So he's just a guy with a ton of baggage and a mm-hmm. guy who really has a certain kind of public bravado, very close with Trump. That would be a notable turn. The most important thing that happened in CPAC, I think it was it it was just a confirmation that Trump still remains in pretty strong standing in the Republican Party. Let's look at a clip from his speech. Drain the swamp once and for all. To remove rogue bureaucrats and root out the deep state, Congress should pass groundbreaking reform. Empowering the president to ensure that any federal employee who is corrupt, incompetent, or unnecessary for the job can be told you're fired. A lot of people who are, you know, I would say more libertarian leaning in my life would hear this and be like, oh, yeah, let's fire bureaucrats. They're incompetent. Let's give more power, more efficiency in government. But that's not what Trump's talking about. We're not talking about a guy who was like a technocratic, efficient manager of government. He was a guy who was in search of loyalists and he wants to install the right kind of people in government. And there's a symmetry between this and what Orban did. Orban did the very same things in Hungary and used that and other measures to consolidate his power and essentially extend his life as the head of state of Hungary indefinitely. Trump won 69% of the straw poll at CPAC, DeSantis 24%. And Mm -hmm. so I think there's a huge debate about who he is. Does he represent that sort of true conservative model or is he Trump light or whatever? That's a big debate. But that poll echoes, I think, what public polling has showed. Harvard Harris had a poll recently from late July that had Trump at 52% and DeSantis at 19%. And so there does seem to be a dominant strain within people who are registered Republicans either responding to these polls or showing up at places like CPAC who still believe that Trump is the guy. And actually, Trump picked up standing from the February CPAC. So he actually gained more support amongst at least those diehards. And a lot of people are wondering, like, what is this going to look like in a primary? Now we have a guy whose house was raided. He's under multiple investigations. We've commented on those. Some of those, I think, seem valid. Some of those, I think, are Democratic overreach. Uh, they're just they're just hot cases. And, yeah. But he seems to be on the march and ascendant within the Republican Party. Yeah, I would say it's still early enough that we should be cautious about the polling, especially considering that these are people attending CPAC. I'll be interested to see how these polls change with him kind of coming back into the public dialogue. Yeah, and he's been he's starting to travel the country supporting candidates uh, for the midterm elections. And a, and a big question I have is how is the media going to cover that? Like, yeah. And and one fascinating question is does does right wing media 
want more of a spotlight on Trump. Like I think a no, lot I of it's going to do with ratings. I don't think Fox know? is really like they're not even really touching him anymore. Like yeah. they're not they're not platforming him. Um, uh, what's her name? Laura Ingram recently did like a whole long form, basically like endorsement interview with Ron DeSantis. So I think there's a clear change in the tide over in conservative media that. Um, they're not really on board this time around. And there's obviously speculation that uh, Murdoch has turned his back on Trump as well, although I've heard that speculation before. But I think we've got enough about Trump, and, mm -hmm. and I think I'm torching you enough about the state of your party for today. Not uh, or not party. your party, the conservative <laughs> once, movement once as a whole. Let's rephrase that, thank uh, you. So let's talk about the Democratic Party and what they did in Congress. Uh, they have now passed in the Senate the Inflation Reduction Act. It's largely intact from when we last discussed it, but with two or three notable changes. Ricky, let's start with this uh, this debate around insulin and the cost of insulin. So there was a provision in the act to cap the cost of insulin at $35 a month for people who were not covered by Medicare. Um, and that the argument for doing that is essentially there are three companies who produce it and um, what 8.4 million Americans who use it regularly. And these companies are kind of increasing prices in lockstep with each other. So it seems like kind of a coordinated monopoly that is hurting consumers in a lot of ways. And while there is a lot of public support for this cap um, in a bipartisan sense, 43 of 50 GOP senators voted to block it. And so that seems on the basis of the bird rule, like that is not going to uh, end up being a, a provision. Um, it's 85% of voters across the board who support it and 86% of Republicans. So this is even in the more free market party, this is something that people absolutely believe in. Yeah, and I think you, you alluded to the bird rule, which we don't need to go into, but basically like you can only pass certain things on a you know, 51 vote line mm -hmm. uh, involving budgetary items. And there's all kinds of stuff going on that made it so that this provision couldn't go through with the rest of the bill. So you needed 60. Uh, that's why that happened. Ken Klippenstein had something interesting to say on Twitter. He said, insulin costs a few dollars to manufacture. Nothing short of a national humiliation that our government lets farmer price gouge huge numbers of people into debt for medicine they need to live. A Democratic strategist said, put this in every ad. <laughs> so yeah. I think they sense a, a political vulnerability with the GOP. I would say that amongst my friends within the Democratic Party, there is a lot of optimism right now about the midterm elections based on this legislation passing, based on the way that the abortion issue is being viewed by voters, and mm -hmm. I think general economic indicators which people are feeling decent about. But we'll spend more time on that because I do think like just like the, the winds have shifted in Democrats' direction over the past few weeks, they could shift in the other direction in the next yeah, few weeks. Uh, but, th but there's one thing I think that is not so great here that the Democrats wind up capitulating on here is this series of tax provisions that cinema seemed to water down. Um, you might like one of these actually, but uh, there's this carried interest loophole that we had talked about a little bit on the show last time, which essentially only applies to people who are investors and private equity people. Uh, and it basically just means that people who are investors pay a lower tax rate. And there's a lot of details around that. She wound up pulling out the provision that would have uh, raised taxes for those people and removed this loophole. Mm -hmm. And she, the Democrats replaced that with a 1% excise tax on stock buybacks. And largely this kind of 
brought back enough revenue for the bill to be similar in sort of money in, money out than when we talked about it last time. So can you explain what exactly a stock buybacks are? Yeah, so a stock buyback is when a public company uses cash to buy shares of its own stock on the open market. And this is an area that is not well understood, but a huge part of American corporate life. So just to give you a statistic, 449 companies were in the S&P 500 index, and they were publicly listed between 2003 and 2012. Of those, they used 54% of their earnings for a total of $2.4 trillion to buy back their own stock. And so people might want to say, like, what? why are they buying their own stock? That seems like a weird thing to do with your earnings. Mm-hmm. And I think this gets to the question of value extraction versus value creation. Uh, And I think, you know, from World War II until the late 1970s, you had this world where uh, you had retain and reinvest within uh, large swaths of corporate America where they would take their earnings and they would do things like build plants and railroads and buy machinery and hire more people and invest in products. And since the late 1970s, there's been a revolution in corporate America where we now call it downsize and distribute, meaning Mm -hmm. you, you basically decrease your costs and increase profits to the shareholders. Now, that's business, right? People can say that's good or bad, and maybe you know companies were too bloated in the late 1970s, and, and this is a good thing. But what's not a good thing are the incentives involved. And I, and I think the, the you can cut through all the noise. We'll link to a Harvard Business Review article that goes through all the reasons why people do stock buybacks. The number one reason why companies do stock buybacks, in my opinion, is because corporate CEO pay is linked every year to the price of a stock in a short-term way. So when you buy back all these stocks, you increase the price of the stock. Now, it could go back down over time, but as long as it stays high that year, bonuses kick in, and a lot of these CEOs get most of their compensation from bonuses. So in 2012, the 500 highest-paid executives in U.S. public companies received on average $30.3 million each, 42% of their compensation came from uh, stock options, 41% from stock awards. And that number, that's from 2012, but that's not much different than it is today. It might even be higher today. And so the people who are running these companies, making these decisions, are getting their compensations based on short-term fluctuations in stock. And a lot of people believe, including Larry Fink of BlackRock, so this is not a big left leftist notion that there's a little bit of manipulation happening here in the price. Well, you know my feelings about Larry. Think about <laughs> well, maybe according to you, a leftist, but, uh, but I think a true um, capitalist. <laughs> capitalist, sure. Um, I think the interesting question here, mostly to me, is just the the reason that cinema needed to be convinced of this provision specifically, which these loopholes are benefiting private equity firms and real estate firms mostly. And it seems like donors to her campaign are essentially the the interests that she right. may be i mean it's not expressly admitted by her obviously but that she may be kind of t- her hands are tied in that sense because she is benefiting from them and i think it's yet another really damning moment for our system that that very important loopholes or very important tax policy is caught up with a single member of Congress. I, I think it's I, I, clearly a broken system. And so this is another really frustrating thing for me as a nonpartisan to be watching. Yeah, I think we have we previously months ago talked about cinema and this fact that she's an enigma. We don't know what she's thinking. It's cute if she were like a Kardashian, but this is like a member of the Senate. Like, I want to know why you did this. Yeah, she's been very you know? uh, opaque. 
and historically. I, yeah, and there's not a lot of Arizonans who are benefiting from this carried interest loophole. And there's another thing I didn't even mention, which is she watered down the minimum corporate tax in a way that basically only benefits private equity. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, who are all the private equity people in Arizona? Right, like Schumer actually gets slightly more donor, not even slightly, significantly more donations. Private equity, to his credit, he still supported this. He certainly didn't seem to fight her too much when she pulled this out. This is a, these were changes that benefit a very small sliver of America with very little rationale. I want to see her on the record defending this. And by the way, carried interest is something that, at least in the public square, has enjoyed a bipartisan sport. I think yeah. Trump said he wanted to get rid of it. He didn't. You know, Democrats long line for a long time of saying they want to get rid of this thing. And it just shows you the power of this industry, private equity that we've talked about, that they can just, you know, slip in in the middle of the night and get this thing out and we just move on. Hmm. Shall we move on to our masculinity debate here? Let's do it. <laughs> we've been kind of punting on this internally for a while, just this long, messy discussion that's happening in the public square around masculinity. And I think it's time. It's time for us <laughs> to wade in. Uh, and I think... Uh, there have been a couple notable things that happened recently, but also like if we just think about the past few years, there's been a really hot discussion, I would say, particularly on the American right, responding to things happening on the American left. Mm -hmm. Set the scene for us. What's going on here? There has been a backlash to the toxic masculinity sort of narrative or the we live in a, a tyrannical patriarchy narrative that has taken over some corners of the left. And now some corners of the right are very much embracing like manliness and um, what that means and potentially going into toxic territory sometimes in their um, pursuit of that. But um, I think that there's there have been some interesting cultural moments, including a 2019 Gillette ad that I think kind of crystallized this debate for a lot of people and um, was highly, highly controversial. Bullying. The Me Too movement against toxic sexual harassment. masculinity. Is this the best a man can get? Is it? We can't hide from it. It's been going on far too long. We can't laugh it off. Who's the daddy? What I actually think she's trying to say. Making the same old excuses. Boys will be boys. Boys will be boys. I actually don't hate this ad. I know I was waiting, the way you were talking about in the office, I was waiting for something like the sexy M&M thing that we had back in no, the day. No, it's definitely not uh, like that. I look at this and I see some things that resonate with me. Okay. Number one is uh, there's a boardroom where the guy interrupts and says, hey, what she's actually trying to say. And that resonates with me because 44 of the Fortune 500 CEOs are women. So like that, that CEO is probably a man. And there's probably a culture of, we call it masculinity or just men being in charge in those boardrooms. That seems to make sense. Uh, it says, and then it's pretty positive about men. It says, we believe in the best of men. Men need to hold each other accountable. And it has a guy stopping uh, another dude from catcalling women down the street. I walk down the street with you sometimes here in, in Little Italy, and I see how weird it is for women to walk down the and street I here. And I survived that. I, I know. I just fine. But, but if like, my buddy was like following you, uh -huh. and I would be like, hey, dude, stop. That's uh -huh. like a, that seems like to reinforce masculine virtues. And then I see a kid kicking another kid's ass and then a parent stepping in. Now, in Staten Island, the parent wouldn't step in, but I would say that was a problem growing up where I grew up. I they actually were, think it's they fine were like for people to be breaking up in fights. That. They were like little kids. One like kid wrestling. is on top of another kid. I don't know if we're talking about the same part of it there yeah. but regardless i'm not like my exception to this is not that there are not valid aspects of it my exception to this is this is 
a Gillette ad and it's basically like you're collectively guilty as a man hold other men accountable and buy our razors like imagine if if there was like a Tampax commercial with collective guilt for women and hold other women accountable and buy these tampons like it the whole thing is weird to me it's very preachy the context of it I think was what people took exception to but also to what I think is a very legitimate problem which is collective guilt and this idea that we're going to say here's an immutable characteristic here are some generalizations and stereotypes of how that expresses itself in culture and then we're going to condemn half the country and little boys growing up looking at this stuff too as collectively guilty and needing to band together as a group to hold each other accountable in no other context culturally is it appropriate to take a huge chunk of a population boil it down to the worst aspects of it and then accuse everyone of being a part of it there are some really bold claims that blame masculinity for essentially everything in our society. You know, just some headlines that have come out recently. Toxic masculinity has become a threat to public health. Toxic masculinity is costing us $15.7 billion every single year. No idea how you quantify that at all whatsoever. The war on mass is a cover-up for toxic masculinity. The Atlantic also compiled a, a list of different issues in society that they've that headlines around the media have condemned masculinity for, including rape, murder, mass shootings, gang violence, online trolling, climate change, Brexit, and the election of Donald Trump. So it's essentially just being like everything bad in society is men. And I just don't think that that's a nuanced conversation. But then I do think that there is a nuanced group of thinkers who are saying, it's not like a man versus woman thing of who's doing better in society and who's hurting society more. There are just legitimate statistics that show that in some ways, in some metrics, that men are struggling. And that doesn't mean that you're not a feminist for saying that or that you don't care about women's issues, but you can very much care about both of them at the same time. I think that one of the biggest Um, areas where men are clearly falling behind is on education. Right now, 60% of college students are girls. 1.5 million people dropped out of college in the past five years, and 71% of them are men. Um, I think we're just really seeing them fall behind. And there's more statistics that we'll get to, but I'll let you respond to some of that. Yeah, I think what friends of mine would say is like, look, like you enjoyed certain advantages because you are a dude. Like that, those stats about CEOs and members of Congress, et cetera, are there because we have you know, what AOC calls the patriarchy and others. Like, I, I don't love throwing around these sort of buzzwords, but there is a role for men in society, a very important one. I don't even think I have to say that given every president of the United States has been a man, most of our senators, most of our members of Congress, most of our CEOs, and according to the Wall Street Journal yesterday, most of the people making most of the money in our society. So uh, there is a something structural happening in our society that's disadvantaging women. I also grew up in a culture in Staten Island amongst my friends where uh, the way we talked about women, uh, thankfully nobody was like physically or anything harmful amongst my group of friends that I was ever aware of, but it was just like a general disrespect to women that permeated mm-hmm. the culture when I was a kid that probably has affected the the way that we as now adults running companies and things like that treat women if we're not careful. So the idea that we, whether we call it toxic masculinity or something else, those structural barriers and attitudinal barriers to me are real. And so if we're bringing those to the forefront and saying, all right, let's confront those, let's get over those, let's make sure that we're not treating people unfairly because of their gender, that's all good. 
I do agree that in certain places we're taking it too far, asking people to apologize for who they are, not letting people speak, because I think that the way it's being discussed politically and ideologically is fascinating, right? So Jordan Peterson, who I think in many ways has attracted an audience because he's talking about the the status of men and like a sort of um, a mentality of self-sufficiency that he's preaching amongst his audience. He says, adopt responsibility for your own well-being. Try to put your family together. Try to serve your community to seek eternal truth. That's the sort of thing that can ground you in your life enough so that you can withstand the dif difficulty of life. The key line there being adopt responsibility for your own well-being. You mm -hmm. mentioned Josh Hawley, who's taken on this cause. He's writing a whole book about masculinity. He gave a speech in 2021 about masculinity. And he takes, in my opinion, the opposite approach. He starts his speech by saying, The left want to define traditional masculinity as toxic. They want to define the traditional masculine virtues, things like courage and independence and assertiveness as a danger to society. This is an effort that the left has been at for years now, and they have had alarming success. American men are working less. They're getting married in fewer numbers. They're fathering fewer children. They're suffering more anxiety and depression. They're engaging in more substance abuse. And then he goes on basically saying that all these things happening to men in our society, like all these negative trends, are because of the left. And I'm like, that's bullshit. Like, like take for example, like you know, you were sharing data with me that we should probably go over about the falling testosterone levels. Mm -hmm. Like, there are a lot of reasons why testosterone might be decreasing, but it's not because we're putting people through toxic masculinity training. This was staggering to me. Between 1999 and 2016, there was, which is not a lot of time, there was a 25% decrease in testosterone levels according to a 2021 study. Like, that's staggering, right. and that's happening really quickly, but I'm definitely not in in the camp of like, this has something to do with the war of men. I think right. this is like a total biological aside yeah. that's environmental. And um, people are saying it could be because of BMI. BMI environmental toxins, I think are probably the most likely cause though, because if you control for BMI and smoking levels and stuff that it's actually not really linked as much. Um, so I think it's definitely a stuff in the environment seems to be one of the biggest contributors, but it's a ton of different factors. But what I would say about this is I there's like totally the reactionary right of, of using this as like a culture war back and forth. And then there's the Jordan Petersons who I, I fall into their camp. I mean, I, I don't, I love Jordan Peterson, like the 12 rules for life philosophy of yeah. just being a stand-up person. I, I can tell you that in my generation, I didn't feel like I was taught to really take personal responsibility as much. I think that there was a lot of like placing blame and pointing your fingers at yeah, things that I go wrong that. for you. And yeah. I think, you know, to me, that's not gendered advice, but it is really resonating with young boys at an unprecedented rate. And I think that there are people who, you know, you can disagree with some of his political things, but there are just genuine life messages that I think are really empowering, especially to young men. And I think there are very thoughtful thinkers who are saying young men are struggling somehow societally, culturally, biologically, whatever it might be. But what they need is role models and and responsibility and a sense of purpose. And I think that there are well-meaning people um, in this conversation. There's clearly a disparate impact of of what the loss of a nuclear family has, how it's impacted boys versus girls. And it's a negative impact that you can see in their graduation rates, their school performance, their suspension rates, jail time. And, you know, I, I that doesn't mean that I'm like, a conservative who's saying we need to enforce the nuclear right. family in some stringent way, but that's one cultural trend that we can definitely distill and say, 
like just like social media is very harmful to girls, this is seems to be more harmful to the long term life outcomes of boys. Yeah, I just that this argument in a way resonates for me, although I don't I don't wind up where a lot of these thinkers are in terms of their solutions. I do no, think they're diagnosing either. a real problem. You know, my dad left when I was a kid and I got suspended. I got in a lot of trouble. I got arrested. And then I started a school in North Nashville, which has the highest incarceration rates for black males or any males in this country mm-hmm. and wound up working with a lot of kids who were facing an even more significant version of what I was dealing with. And I think it's real. And I think it, you know, and I want to shout out the moms in those scenarios who were like my mom and a lot of others who were like Absolutely. doing both jobs. And it's not to fault uh, the women at all for in this sure. scenario, for sure. And I think that's a good place to end. Um, I, I look forward to our femininity debate next week. <laughs> I'm all for uh, it. <laughs> um, I don't know what I'll have to offer to that, but I'll try. Uh, thank you for listening and watching. If you're watching, make sure to hit that like button. If you're a listener, if you haven't subscribed and given us uh, a rating, a five-star rating, really helps helps us move up those rankings. Our audience is growing. And if you like our show, just go out there and tell somebody about it, tweet about it, post about it. Uh, Because as we head into the fall, we're going to be going out on the trail, going to swing districts, covering the midterms, talking to voters from all different spectrums, including independents, unaffiliated voters. And so we want to bring as many many of you into that conversation as possible. Uh, And so we'll be back here on Thursday and we'll see you then.